Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. The story I'm going to open with is probably one that you've heard before. It's kind of a classic preacher fanfare story to get a message started. It was told of a young boy that desperately wanted a bicycle for Christmas, so he asked his parents for the bike. His parents wanted to teach him the importance of prayer, so they suggested that this young boy should write a letter to Jesus and pray for one instead. And so he wasn't very pleased with the response of his parents, and he immediately threw a temper tantrum, and his parents sent him to his room for his disobedience. And once he was in his room, he decided to take his parents' advice, he had nothing else to do, and go ahead and write this letter to Jesus, asking for a bicycle. His first letter started out, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and would love a new bicycle. Can you see if I can have a new bicycle? Your friend, Johnny. Now, Johnny knew that Jesus really knew what kind of boy he had been that year, so he ripped up the letter and he decided to give it another try. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year and I want a new bicycle. Yours truly, Johnny. Well, Johnny knew that this wasn't totally honest, so he tore it up and decided that he would try again. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Could I please have a bicycle? Johnny. Then Johnny looked deep down in his heart, which, by the way, is what his parents really wanted him to do. He knew he had been a bad boy, he had been difficult, and he hoped that he would receive something just simply because Jesus loved him. So he threw and crumpled up the letter, threw it in the trash, and he went downstairs where his mother had a nativity set on the fireplace mantle. He then took the statue of Mary, wrapped it in a blanket, went back up to his room and hid it under his bed, and then he started to write his final letter. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, Give me a bicycle. We have a tendency to make things more complicated than they need to be sometimes. And today we're going to continue our learning from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And in this story, we're going to see a new person introduced that will become a leader in the early church. We're going to witness an exorcism. And then we're going to see the simplicity of salvation that happens in one of the most unlikely ways. This is Acts chapter 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we have the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts 16, here we go. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, this part, even though it's not going to be the main focus of this morning's message, it's important to study because Luke introduces a very important person for the future of the church, a young man by the name of Timothy. Now, we actually know a moderate amount about Timothy, and he becomes an important traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And in this particular section, we learn that Timothy was already a believer. He had been saved, accepted by Christ, and now he was serving God 
in his life, and he was well-respected, and he was called a disciple. And may I pause for just a moment and talk about that word, disciple. You know, we use that word a lot in church settings, and most of the time we're referring to the 12 disciples that Jesus selected to be his closest students during his earthly ministry. And certainly their faithfulness, their grit, their determination, and their knowledge turned the world upside down after the resurrection of Jesus. So we should talk about them and learn from their lives. But disciple has a much broader meaning as well. It really is a student, a person who has a desire to learn. And in this case, a desire to learn the scriptures, to learn the things and the will of God. A desire to mature, to grow from who they currently are to be reflective about who they are, and to have a spiritual wisdom that is forever growing and forever maturing. And then a desire to also go and to make disciples of others, to have this message contained within them that they don't simply want to forever contain only within their own heart and their own life but to go and to make disciples of others. And this was the relationship that emerged between the Apostle Paul and Timothy. And in Timothy's life, there's a strong story of family and the importance of the influence the family has on a child's belief, on their salvation, and the ever-growing maturity and insight of their faith. And we learn about Timothy primarily from two letters Paul sent to Timothy, conveniently titled in the Bible, First and Second Timothy, or One Timothy and Two Timothy. Timothy's mother was Eunice, and his grandmother was named Lois. Luke tells us that Timothy's father was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. So there had been a blending of worlds in this family, this diversity that was in Timothy's life. And it's clear that Timothy's mother and grandmother had reared him in true biblical faith. In fact, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.15 that from infancy, from childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3.15. And so for those of us who are parents, grandparents, or will be parents one day, that should be a very heavy example that weighs on our hearts that we are deeply responsible and deeply influential in the belief and faith and the salvation of our children and those whom God has given to our charge. So while Timothy isn't the primary focus of today's message, as I said, Luke clearly introduces him here for many important reasons that we'll continue to learn as we move through the New Testament. We see and learn of the people that invested in Timothy's life and the development of his relationship to God. His youth here, Timothy was likely only in his late teens or his early 20s when he began traveling with Paul. He was very young. And so we see the generational spread of the work and the kingdom of God and the spreading of the gospel of Christ. And this is so beautiful then to see in the church. It was so beautiful then to see, and now it's so beautiful now to see, again, this generational expansion, this generational spread of everyone joined in the kingdom of God, not to be merely separated into youth groups and college groups and senior adults and young married couples without children or young married couples with children, even though I think that those can have a meaningful place, but we are all united in love and singular purpose of doing the work of Christ, the work 
of the kingdom of God. And we see this over and over again, both explicitly and implicitly in Scripture. Here, implicitly. And Timothy was admonished by Paul for genuine faith, being wise for salvation. Timothy could distinguish truth from error. Distinguish truth from error. You know, this is a staggeringly important ability in today's world. And once again, Timothy could do this because he had been taught the scriptures from a young age. A biblical worldview had been instilled in this young man's life from a very young age. So some questions for us. Do we want our children to understand God's plan for human relationships and human sexuality? Then we teach them the Bible from infancy. Do we want our children to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves? We teach them the scriptures from infancy. Do we want them to value their life and the lives of others and realize that they have a purpose and belonging and value, not because of their accomplishments or what other people say that they are, but because of who Christ says that they are? We teach them the scriptures from infancy. Timothy becomes integral in the growth of the early church. Paul mentored Timothy, and Timothy humbly accepted this mentorship. It's been rightly said that we all need a Paul, someone to mentor us and to guide us. And at some point, as we grow and mature, we all need a Timothy, a person to then invest our lives in and give our God-given wisdom to. The next section here starts in Acts 16, verse 16 that I'm going to read to you this morning. This is an interesting story. It's the story of an exorcism that takes place here. As we, we as Luke and Paul and the other traveling companions here, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. But when, their, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with bronze. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, in these chains. So this next section of Acts 16, we find, at the very least, Paul and Silas in prison. There could have been more. And there was a slave girl who made her owners lots of money by telling the future because she had the spirit of divination. Now, that's a word we don't use super often in the modern vernacular. And the word divination comes from the Latin divinare, and it means to foresee or to be inspired by a god. So to practice divination was to uncover hidden knowledge by supernatural sources. It, 
is associated with the occult, and it involves fortune-telling, or soothsaying, as it used to be called many, many years ago. And it's interesting when we talk about this because it makes people uncomfortable, and rightly so, I may say. It's something that we don't talk a lot about in modern settings. And I think it's a great trick of the devil to convince high-minded, intellectual, haughty people that things of demons, possessions, and evil spirits are silly, ridiculous, and completely untenable, made-up things while at the same time, other people who may be equally as intelligent, or perhaps they are weak-minded, the devil convinces others to have a great interest in these things and a great curiosity in the spirit world. And so anytime we're confronted with a quandary like this, these things that emerge from scriptures that we're kind of uncomfortable with, we have to ask, what does the Bible have to say on the matter? And then we seek the answers. And so here's what I will tell you. The Bible is abundantly clear. Evil spirits, demonic spirits, do exist. Demons can, demons do, and demons will possess people. They torment people. They convince people of lies. They lead them to do destructive things to themselves and to others. And while I believe it is very irresponsible to consider and think that all mental health issues and all mental health problems or illnesses is a result of demonic possession, it most certainly isn't. I do believe that in our modern world, we sometimes diagnose with fancy medical terms what actually is indeed demonic tormenting or in extreme cases, demonic possession. And in some instances, as the Bible records, the host of a demon is given special abilities. And such was this case with this girl, as she was able to tell people their fortunes and even predict the future with some degree of accuracy. Now, we don't know all about this. It very well may have been some tomfoolery going on here, but regardless, she had garnered a following. But as an important aside, the Bible teaches that those who are saved, those who are in Christ, those who are born again, cannot be possessed by a demon. Now, can believers battle with demons? Yes. Can Christians be tormented by demons? Yes. But believers cannot be possessed by demons. Why? Because when we are born again, when we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit forever with us when we are saved. John writes in 1 John 4, Little children, you are from God. He was writing to believers. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. And what's interesting is this. This girl keeps following Paul and his missionary companions around proclaiming that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so in the Bible, when we see demonic possession and activity, we often see a strange irony. The evil spirits acknowledge God for who he is. There's one such example in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 8:28. Jesus encounters many demons here, one named Legion, that he casts into a group of pigs. But these demons acknowledge Jesus, and they call out to him and refer to him as Son of the Most High God. Even demons believe. In fact, the Bible says that the only ones 
who do not believe that God does not exist, are the ones who say in their heart that God, that there is no God. The Bible calls those people a fool. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Interestingly, a common misconception, even demons believe that God exists. But the Apostle Paul did not want this wickedness to be associated with the gospel message. There would have been this mixing of truth with error if this slave girl had been allowed to continue. And Paul knew that this could be detrimental to the pure, authentic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul orders this demon to come out of the slave girl in the name of Jesus Christ. And it does. An exorcism takes place. Now, wonderful story, right? Well, yes, but not everyone was happy. You see, this possessed slave girl had special abilities, and people paid a lot of money for this insight, as they do even today. And now this ability was gone. And so this group that becomes angry at this unfortunate economic situation for them, they managed to stir up the entire city against Paul and Silas. They're uh, Paul and Silas are beat, they're flogged, and then they're thrown in to prison. And it would be very easy for us to view this as a moment of failure, or at the very least unfair and unjust, or perhaps the most unjust. But God was working in the background for this amazing event that happens next. This is Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and every one's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Paul and Silas found themselves in prison as a result of this deed that they had done. While they're there, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. Now, we don't know what they were singing, but we do know that the prisoners and other prisoners were listening to them and the jailers were listening to them. You see, our prayers matter. Our praise matters. People are watching you. People are watching me. And even the enemies of Christian people are watching us to see how we respond to life, how we treat others, and how we live our lives when things are good, but also how we live our lives when things are rough. Bowing our heads in prayer, praising God, can be just as effective of a witness as direct person-to-person -person conversation, and it is the authentic, Christ-centered work of the church. So Luke clearly includes this detail because it was impactful. And so we read that there was a great earthquake, the prison doors were opened, and the bonds, the chains on Paul and Silas, 
they fall off. Now, we don't know if this was the result of an earthquake or God miraculously caused this to happen, but God in his sovereignty, regardless, was definitely at work, and Paul and Silas are freed. Now, it was a big, dramatic moment here. This jailer, this prison guard, logically thought that Paul and Silas had hit the road. And now I'm not going to lie to you. They, that would have been my initial reaction if I had been in Paul and Silas's shoes. Hit the road, Jack. This has been a miraculous event, and now's my chance to hightail it. But clearly Paul saw that this was a God-ordained moment. So the jailer looks around, and he assumes that Paul and Silas would have done just that. They would have bolted, and so he was going to kill himself. Now, why was he going to do this? Well, even in moments like this, we see how Luke painstakingly records historical details. And we've learned so much about history from Luke. So this instances here illustrate something in Roman law called the custody of criminals, or de custodia reorum, which meant that the jailer would have faced the same punishment that was to be inflicted on the escaped prisoner. And so rather than face the disgrace in a painful execution, the jailer decided to end his own life. The Roman code of honor necessitated it. But Paul had a love for lost souls. And what was going to be a pagan suicide resulted in salvation. So here's what Paul does next. Don't harm yourself, he says. We're all here. Paul knew what the Roman custom was. He knew what the jailer was about to do. Paul knew he was going to kill himself. Now, I know we all like to think that we would probably be as sanctimonious as Paul would be here and care for this man's life. But you see, Paul hadn't been merely placed in a jail with a bed and three meals a day. He had been stripped, flogged, and beaten. And the conditions of the prisoners were so putrid that I will avoid describing them to maintain some dignity from this pulpit. And I won't project on you what I think you would do, but I'll be transparent with you. There would have definitely been at least a small part of me that would have said, Good riddance, you evil, wicked man. But Paul didn't do that. He was imitating the love of Christ, and he loved his enemy here. An example for me, and an example for you. So Paul assures the guard that all the prisoners are there, and there's no need to kill himself. And the guard rushes in and falls down before Paul and Silas, and then asks this question, What must I do to be saved? Not how to be saved from the punishment of the Romans, and not how to be saved from Paul and Silas. No, he wasn't scared of them but how to be saved from the judgment of God, how to be saved from his wicked, sinful state, and how to be saved so he could have a relationship with the Jesus Paul and Silas had been singing and praying to while shackled in their prison chains. So Paul and Silas say, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So what are some takeaways from this? Well, this last story of Scripture is where I want to tie the message up with some of these timeless takeaways that I so often talk about, particularly when talking about salvation. It started with the question, the single most important question that anyone could ever ask on this earth, what must I do to be saved? So what is the meaning of salvation? Now, some of the following may be review to you or for some, it may be brand new, but it's important to have a biblical understanding of what it means to be saved, as this jailer did in Acts 16. 
you know, occasionally I'll see some bumper stickers, signs, or other things that seem to kind of snub their proverbial noses at the idea of God and salvation. You may have seen them. Not all who wonder are lost. I don't need saving, or I can save myself. Certainly, there can be a strong attitude of defiance toward God and the gospel. In fact, that's what got humanity into trouble in the first place. But if someone in a conversation asks you or me, what is salvation? We need an answer. Paul and Silas say here, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is salvation not? Well, first of all, salvation is not having all the answers. Salvation is not being perfect or having attained a level of goodness that in that state God then considers you. It's not based on anything that I have done or anything you have done. It's nothing about my righteousness or that I have or attempted to have because I don't have any. But salvation is this. It's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture and really think about this for a moment. The Bible contains all God wants us to know about Him. All He wants us to know about redemption, about salvation, and how to live a life that glorifies God. We don't have to seek and search through the writings of gurus and sages. God's complete revelation to mankind is here in the Bible. And the story of how the Bible came together is one that is saturated with God's providence and will. And so therefore, while some commentaries are great, and there are all sorts of resources to help us understand Scripture better, we must first ask, what does the Bible say? Allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Jeller says here, what must I do to be saved? And we may ask, saved from what? And if you turn back in the Gospels to the precious book of Matthew and the birth of Jesus is being announced, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Sin. Jesus saves us from sin. Sin is that which separates us from a holy God. We are all sinners. The punishment for sin is death. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us from our sin. You know, I love this statement by the late preacher Timothy Keller. He said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. When a person is saved, we see both repentance and belief. Now you may say, now Christopher, be careful. Paul and Silas say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you are correct. I do need to be careful. I don't need to add stuff here. But it is important to note that repentance and belief, those are two sides of the same coin. The Greek word here that Paul and Silas use for believe also carries the meaning and the idea of trust. The jailer didn't merely have to believe that Jesus existed, but he had to trust in who Christ is and who he claimed to be and abandon his old way of life and follow Christ. Christ. And if you'll notice in verse 32, Luke records for us that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so while we don't know exactly what Paul and Silas told this man quote by quote, we can be certain that it was a biblical representation of what it meant to be saved. He was saved by faith. He had heard the gospel, 
the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then he believed, fully trusting the Lord Jesus, which involves repentance and a changing of mind about sin and about Christ, and calling on the name of the Lord. And what about this household statement that Paul makes? Paul is telling the jailer that all his household will be saved, and that's given some people some trouble. So was Paul talking about universal salvation that would somehow be transferred to all the family members? Well, no, he was not. What was happening here was prophetic. God had simply given Paul special insight into knowing that this man's family would come to faith in Jesus as a result of his own conversion. But I have to tell you it's an interesting compliment to this scripture that there's some long-standing data that shows the importance of men in the spiritual leadership and conversion of their families. When kids come to faith in Christ first, 3.5% of families will follow. When the mom comes to faith in Christ first, 17% of families will follow. But when dad comes to faith in Christ first, 93% of families will follow. And while we should never fragment our focus from reaching all people with the gospel, we must not forget the specific ministry that we must have for men and honor their role in the spiritual leadership of the family. And so we have the response to a call from God here, hearing the word of God, conviction by the spirit of God, the supernatural rebirth, and entering the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus referred when he talked about being saved, entering the kingdom of God. And there is salvation in no one else besides Jesus, the only way. And I'm so grateful not only for what Christ has done to make the way for salvation, but that God has made it so simple that we can understand it. The simplicity of salvation. You know, after the jailer and his household were saved, they were baptized, and then the guard, the jailer, prepared food, and they all ate together and rejoiced. It was an unexpected ending to this story, considering how it began. The jailer guarding Paul and Silas in a scummy prison, willing to kill them if they tried to escape. Paul and Silas in the midst of suffering, praising God with singing and prayer. Then an earthquake, then darkness and uncertainty. But then the jailer sees the light, hears the gospel, and follows Christ. Almost seems like Luke was giving us a literal metaphor for life. But then they all sit around and rejoice and praise God for the work he had done. And so let us close in prayer and singing and do that as well. Heavenly Father, it's very possible that all people who are here today have at one time or another in their lives been saved. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and the beautiful truth of that gospel message, and they have trusted you as their Lord and as their Savior. So help us to relive that moment in our heart when we came to realize that you are who you claim to be and that you saved us, knowing that it was you, God, our Creator, who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. There may be some who can remember the day, the hour, and the minute they were saved. They remember the smell of what Grandma was cooking on the stove when it happened. And there may be others that rejoice in not knowing the date stamp, but they know that you tell us in your word that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in your grace and in your love, there is no reason you would not have saved them. And there's no reason that you wouldn't save anyone right now. God, if there's anyone here who finds himself in the position of the Philippian jailer who has not been saved, I ask that you would press upon their heart and that they would turn to you and help us as your church, your people, to do what Silas, 
did and what Paul did with the jailer, and share your word with them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the profundity, the beauty, the grace, the love, the simplicity of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.